Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, a modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people in Ireland from being a burden to their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public by Jonathan Swift. Yeah, uh, this uh, modest proposal is so famous that people just use the phrase modest proposal to refer to a whole class of ideas. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, even if one hasn't read it, one may well know that the modest proposal is hardly modest at all. It's quite immodest. And what is being proposed is, in fact, something horrifying, terrible. Um, At the time that this was published, 1729, uh, Dr. Swift was the the dean of St. Patrick's Uh, cathedral in Dublin, Uh, although Ireland was then and still is a largely uh, Roman Catholic country, uh, Swift, although a native Irishman, um, was Anglo-Irish. The the cathedral was uh, the cathedral of the Church of Ireland, which was a part of the Anglican communion, the same way the Episcopal Church in the United States is part of the Anglican communion. Um, And so in a sense, it was an independent church. It was a Christian uh, organization. He was clearly a Christian clergyman of some consequence. But his modest proposal is for dealing mostly with the poor, who were mostly Catholic, and who were not Anglo at all, Ireland being subjugated to the English at this time. And the problem is, as the projector tells us, the voice of the person who is putting forward a project, uh, which many such projectors uh, existed in England in the 18th century, trying to get people to come board some scheme. What he proposes is that one way to deal with this enormous number of poor people who are a drag on society and keep having children who themselves are costly to feed and clothe and so on would be to fatten them up to about the age of one and then eat them and what a delicacy they would make in fact a mother could probably get eight shillings for a yearling and she'd have very little cost in raising the child because up to that point the child could be uh, fed just by breastfeeding by suckling as uh, it's said here so the modest proposal is basically eat the poor mm. and then the fellow who is speaking tells us you know first he sets it up by explaining the nature of the problem then he tells us his solution very quickly then most of what follows is a description of all of the good effects of this particular solution. And then at the very end, he says, well, you know, um, there are other things that have been suggested. And he lists a whole number of possibilities that would actually be kind of good social policy. Um, But he said, since these have never worked, um, mine is clearly the best. 
<laughs> and uh, and he tells us what a swell fellow he is and a benefactor of humanity. Um, what and that he's. Yeah, I I also I, I think it's just hilarious that at the end he also points out that he personally won't even profit from this because uh, he says quote I have no children by which I can propose to get a single penny the youngest being nine years old and my wife is past childbearing right <laughs> so it's he's doing it for the generosity of you know just offering a good solution for everybody it's wonderful <laughs> he's not even gonna make money from it yeah. Uh, this is a classic satire. Um, the word satire has gone through uh, many different semantic changes over the course of its use. Among the the ancient Greeks, the word satire contained within its semantic range flat out invective. Your mother is ugly and your father is stupid. Um, would be considered satire. Uh, nowadays, we think that satire has to have some cleverness to it. And if one has a certain attitude toward the aesthetic distancing that the satire creates, one might even think of it as a joke, uh, the same way that we can look at the violence of slapstick comedy and laugh, even though there's violence involved. Uh, I think you're right. I heard the laughter in your voice, Jesse. Mm -hmm. Modest proposal is in that sense hilarious. It's making fun of so many things um, through the the single lens of, well, let's just assume that it's a good thing to eat the children of the poor. Um, but I have to say, um, I don't mean this pun, but I can't seem to figure out a way to avoid it. Tastes vary. And... Uh, <laughs> um, Although I, I really enjoyed rereading A Modest Proposal for our conversation, I did not find myself laughing aloud. I just kept thinking to myself, my God, what life must have been like yeah. in, in, in this period? Because some of the things that are said here just ring so true. I mean, there's yeah. a line that says... Uh, you know, why wouldn't the landlords who control, after all, the land on which the basically uh, agrarian Irish live, why wouldn't the landlords, who are largely English, um, want to uh, eat the children, uh, the, the infants? After all, they've almost entirely devoured their parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and making clear the political, economic, and moral weight of that metaphor, devour, um, I, I found that I, I couldn't laugh at this, even though it's clearly in form a joke. It's not the ancient Roman kind of satire. It is much more the modern satire. <sighs> Maybe it's because I have children and grandchildren of my own, uh, but I don't think so. I think it's just Swift is so good at showing how bad people can be, mm -hmm. that that I found myself just sort of shaking my head in bitter agreement, much more than laughing. Yeah, I think I think that that yeah he he's a very complex figure because he he's a a Christian man, right? A Christian cleric, in fact, but he doesn't seem to be. Um, 
he, he he's not making jokes as in you know these are although he isn't above fart jokes this is this is the most serious topic of the time and it's kind of the, the you mean what to do with the poor yeah i mean just the the fact that there there are literally you know thousands and thousands of people starving and the solution is n- not to you know n- none of the solutions are working and he he's te- he's dealing with an incredibly serious topic uh, but he's not he's not he he seems to hate people who who talk a good game but don't do anything and in this he it is so famous right this this essay um, and and that title a modest proposal everybody who wants to do satire just starts their essay i have a modest proposal and they just call call it a modest proposal for x and so because it's so it's so uh, profoundly powerful in that it says, look, seriously, if we're going to treat people this badly and we we have all these thieves trying to steal to keep their livelihood, we've got to do something about it. And uh, I've done the calculations and here's how it would work. And wouldn't this one, right? It's almost as if you could take it seriously because it was published anonymously originally. Right, as almost everything was then. And sitting down and reading this, he sets it up so perfectly so that, you know, you're ready for it. And then he keeps going and going and going with it, like just uh, uh, anticipating objections, right? Yeah. <laughs> and saying, you know, how this scheme would work. And he gets, he's got all the numbers worked out, right? Um, and he... He has most readily assured by a friend in, from yeah, a knowing American of my acquaintance in London that a young child, well nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food. Right? It's like, could this, could this not be a satire? Yes. Right? But what what makes it a satire is that it is beyond the pale, as they put it. Right? I think I do believe that that's true Um, for those who catch the satire early on. uh, I think that uh, that there actually are internal rhetorical devices that come up later in the in the text that let us know that it has to be satiric, even if we don't catch it. Um, But that is even if to us, it's not beyond the pale. Um, and I'd like to, to suggest where that happens at some point in our conversation. But but I think you're quite right. It is beyond the pale. And most people should re- be revolted by it. But ours is a 21st century sensibility. Um, there is a line here about how uh, that we already sell these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I did a bit of research. And it turns out that, indeed, in 1729... Um, we're sorry. Is it 29? Yep. Um, they did sell these people. Mm-hmm. That is one of the systems was indentured servitude. Half the population of America at that time was, uh, that is half the white population was either 
indentured servants or transportees, that is, criminals who'd been sent to the new world rather than go to the expense of putting them in prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those indentured servants had not become indentured servants voluntarily. They had been what we call Shanghai, or they'd been sold into indentured servitude, for example, by the beetle of a workhouse. Mm-hmm. And that's where the poor would go. And they consciously made the conditions in a workhouse so terrible that no one would voluntarily go there. It had to be the absolute last resort. I read a passage um, about a woman who showed up at the door of a workhouse um, three years before Charles Dickens moved onto the, in the into the neighborhood that had that very same workhouse and which everyone presumes is the model for the workhouse in Oliver Twist, which is over a century after after a modest proposal. And in this uh, this newspaper report of the time, a pregnant woman, incredibly impoverished, obviously, or you wouldn't go to a workhouse, knocks on the door and will not be admitted. And the newspaper article makes clear she won't be admitted because she is, in fact, on the verge of giving birth. And the workhouse knows that it cannot send the child out to earn its own keep until it is six years old, which is exactly the age that Swift gives us as when you can finally expect a child to start earning its own keep. Hence, right. sell them at a year when they are nicely fattened up without having had to have any other expense than the mother's milk. But you don't have to then have all of the expenses from one to six when the child could not be returning any economic benefit. That's six was still the age of workhouses. And this woman actually would not be admitted. It was cold day and her water broke. She got down on the pavement. She gave birth to the infant. The workhouse would not take her in. She had no place to go. And the infant died. And the newspaper article says that no one knows what happened to them, to the, the mother. I mean, the idea that people were allowed to just dispose of newborns, that the, the economics of dealing with the poor was so cruel. And, you know, once you begin to see that that's what's going on, even a century later, after after slavery has been abolished, you know, you you think England is making progress between the beginning of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. And yet think of what this must have been like at that point, a modest proposal. You know, it's beyond the pale for you and me, but I can't help but think that it wasn't beyond the pale for exactly. a lot of people who read it at the time which is why it's important that eventually there are other rhetorical signals. It can't just be, Oh my God, eating children. Yeah. It, 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 it's so, uh, what's so amazing about this, uh, this essay from more, almost 300 years ago is that it's so relevant to so many problems still today. We know what the problem is, but there's no solution that people are willing to, or that politicians are willing or able to implement. And and so he's gone the other way, right? And that's the whole point of his setup is that 
look, we've tried this and we've tried that. You know, we know what the problem is and here's a a reasonable solution. And it's so, um, so well thought out that it, it, and because the proposal comes so early, you know, he sets it up a bit, but when he, he, he pops it in, he then doesn't like let us sit with that. He just goes on to detail the objections, possible objections. So one of the things that happens is that, well, why are all these Irish babies starving? Why are all these young married couples, you know, in such bad situation? Well, it's because they're Roman Catholic, right? And here he is, a, a, a guy who gives sermons on Sundays um, saying, you know, parents shouldn't let their children grow up to be beggars and thieves. Um, a real issue when you've got no food and no employment um, it was actually happening. Here he is saying, uh, there are more children born in the Roman Catholic countries about nine months after Lent than there are in any other season. Therefore, reckoning after a year of Lent, the markets will be more glutted than usual because of the number of popish infants. Right. Is it at least three to one in this kingdom? And therefore, it will have one other collateral advantage by lessening the number of papists among us. Amazing. That is Amazing. the central conflict of Irish history for the next uh, 300 years, right? Absolutely. It's, it's absolutely built into it. And here he is saying exactly what's on the minds of all of his parishioners, right? All the people in his parish, right? It's because they're papists that God is punishing them. You know, this, uh, I, I, I think it's very important that you, you, you say how, how well thought out this is. It, the, the core idea, the modest proposal is to eat the infants, um, is so easily said that it seems, you know, how can you fill up, a, you know, a, a nine single space page essay um, yeah. or eight or set, you know, whatever format you've got it in a substantial essay, um, 15 minutes worth of reading. How can you fill that up with just the one idea? But in fact, this gets ramified horizontally, as it were, and also deepened. So. You know, the, the reason that there are children born after Lent is that, uh, that is nine months after Lent, is that during the period of Lent, that 40 days, uh, Roman Catholics eat fish rather than eating meat. Fish, we are told by the projector, Swift speaker, are prolific. That is to say, they make you more likely to have children. They, mm-hmm. right? So it is indeed the fact of their religion that causes the seasonality. However, one could not eat meat and eat other things and survive happily in Lent, especially if one were poor where having access to meat is not easy to begin with. Mm-hmm. But fish are not just any substitute for beef or mutton. 
In fact, the fish is a symbol for Jesus. And here we have the dean of St. Patrick's Cathedral saying that it is because of the Catholic's consumption of fish. This is my body, eat of it, Jesus says to his disciples at the Last Supper. It's because of their consumption of fish that they are prolific. They have, in fact, been blessed by God by being able to have children. Be ye as little children. Let the children come to me. And this projector is deaf to all of that. Things that clearly Jonathan Swift would know. Instead of seeing these children as the blessed of God, he sees them as a crop. He's an evil person. Of course, yeah. Swift isn't. But he's created this self-satisfied, arrogant, immodest proposer. Yeah. Let me say, in terms of ramifying sideways, um, when you talked about the, the American, um, the, the, uh, the, I have it, um, I have been assured by a very knowing American of my acquaintance mm -hmm. in London that a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is at a year old, a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food. Um, that's what you quoted. And I think one thing worth noting is that uh, Swift is using this to allow his self-satisfied, um, morally blind uh, projector to take, uh, to give us a swat at Americans, because after all, Americans must already be eating human beings. So the American actually knows this. But to show that this um, denigration of the colonies is invalid, Swift has his projector go on. The American says that it's a delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled, which clearly the American has experienced. And I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fricassee or a ragu. So this guy is coming aboard and trying to outdo the American mm -hmm. in what kind of evil things to do. Swift is using this single starting point to take all kinds of uh, to make all kinds of critiques, including a critique of the English sense of superiority over its colonies. Because after all, 1729, you know, um, the, the colonies still are very much part of the, the British Empire. Um, and so what we see is a certain kind of guy. Now the question is, uh, uh, what kind of a guy is he? Um, and here I think is, is part of what's been funny and literally laughable about the, uh, this, if you can get the distance. He keeps going beyond the pale, as you say. Mm -hmm. And his way of going beyond the pale is to utterly commodify human babies. Um, in fact, the word commodity is used here, you know, a century and a quarter before Marx, um, who talks about the commodification of labor. Um, it says, and the money w that, is, that is generated by selling the infants, and the money will circulate among ourselves, the goods being entirely of our own growth and manufacture. Yeah. This is great for the English economy 
Right? Yeah, he's right. A, he was a really big nationalist um, for actually Ireland. Um, he wanted at the, there's a lot of this essay that deals with exactly that sort of the proposing how this is a solution to uh, the lack of employment as well is that if we sell our own product here in Ireland, that'll help us. Right. And, and so a lot of it has to do with selling to the Irish lords and the, employing the Irish tenants on those. You know, so it's uh, it's 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 like it's a general economic boost as well. Exactly. Which means it's a general economic critique about the moral obligations of the 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 landed gentry, the owners, the employers to those who work their land. Um, it, it's it's it. This commodification is an issue even if you don't eat them, right? Even if the devouring is only metaphorical, um, there's something fundamentally wrong with the Irish economy. And we know one of the things that's wrong about it because we're told that most of the owners don't live there. But when we are given um, the solutions that haven't worked, one of the solutions is we could charge um, a tax of five shillings uh, for each pound of rent that is taken out of the country, right? So, but of course that won't work because the laws are made in London and the people who collect those rents are not living in Ireland. And so none of the profit of the land is being returned to increase the economy, to support the people who are in fact doing the work that's creating the value. And that section and the money will circulate among ourselves, uh, Swift is ironically saying there could be solutions. But of course, the goods that are entirely our own growth and manufacture, those goods are children, right? They're infants. Um, and earlier on, and a couple of times throughout, the women who give birth to these are called breeders, which is the language you use for agriculture, for farm animals. So in the very next sentence, after the goods being entirely of our own growth and manufacture, which says that the, the, the projector has entirely objectified and commodified the, the infants, the very next line says, fourthly, that is the fourth wonderful consequence of his modest proposal, the constant breeders besides the gain of eight shillings uh, sterling per annum by the sale of their children, will be rid of the charge of maintaining them after the first year. Yeah. Now, the charge of maintaining them, where does that charge come from? It's certainly not in the law. The charge for maintaining them comes from maternal love. The necessity of raising an infant is, in fact, a moral stimulus. It's a moral imperative. We don't worry about um, maintaining uh, a child if we use a wet nurse. We have maintaining the child by giving someone else's milk to it, as the wealthy did in England in the 18th century. So long as you maintain the child, you are fulfilling your maternal duties, not the law. 
So in this second line, in the first line, the infants are, are objects. In the second line, they are part of a family. And the fact that our narrator, our projector, I should say, can't see the difference between treating a baby as an, as an object and treating the baby as a member of a family, that lets us know that this is absolutely wrong. It's not just that his ideas are way too extreme because he keeps coming back to the moral value of these things. It's better for the parents. It's better for society. He talks about the abhorrence we have of abortion. Look at how these people are murdering their children. We mm-hmm. have to stop abortion. It's, it's, he doesn't use the word sinful, but he talks about moral repugnance. Well, if it's morally repugnant to kill a child, how can you turn around and say, let's kill the child? That self-contradiction means that even if we didn't notice that it's beyond the pale, we would still have to recognize that this is not well thought out, that the the self-aggrandizement that the projector claims for himself is invalid. He is the kind of person who would think of ways to profit by the poor is the object of this satire. Uh, there's um there's a, I, I don't know if this joke works um, at the time, but it certainly works now uh, when he's talking about all the ways it would benefit, you know, the economy and how well, it's not just meat, he says, he says, those who are more thrifty, as I must confess, the times require may flay the carcass of the skin of which artificially dressed will make admiral gloves for ladies and summer boots for fine gentlemen. And I was just realizing, well, the, that's kid gloves. <laughs> he's treating <laughs> the subject with kid gloves. Uh, no, he's not treating no, the subject. No, he's not. And in fact, the Nazis did just that. They didn't oh make God. shoes, but they made lampshades out of human yeah. skin. And the, the, the next paragraph um, is a, a sentence that says, and butchers, we we may be assured, will not be wanting. Although I recommend buying the children alive and dressing them hot from the knife, as we do roasting pigs. And he, I mean, there's no humanity there. Right? None at all. So it's on the basis it's on the basis of shallowly seeing no humanity in the projector that people have asserted that Pope himself that Swift himself was was a misanthrope that he didn't like humanity. But I would like to quote a very famous passage from a letter that Pope wrote to Alexander. Excuse me, Swift wrote to Alexander Pope four years before this in 1725. Swift wrote. I have ever hated all nations, professions, and communities, and all my love is toward individuals. For instance, I hate the tribe of lawyers, but I love counselor such a one and judge such a one. So with physicians, I will not speak of my own trade, meaning clergymen, um, soldiers, English, Scotch, French, and the rest. But principally, I hate and detest that animal called man, although I heartily love John, Peter, Thomas, and so forth. This is the system upon which I have governed myself many years. 
but do not tell. And so I shall go on till I have done with them. I have got materials toward a treatise proving the falsity of that definition, animal rational, rational animal for human beings. And to show uh, it would be only rationis capax, capable of reasoning. Upon this great foundation of misanthropy, I never will have peace of mind till all honest men are of my opinion. What Swift is telling Pope here is, I'm a misanthrope because I hate how people act Mm -hmm. in large. When they get together, they allow the system to validate what they do. They need to look at individuals. And I'm going to continue to try to make people look at that system and feel bad until the system changes one Peter or Thomas after another. There is incredible love of humanity behind this modest proposal. I think Swift is, in some sense, the exact opposite of his projector. He is, if you like, Stephen Colbert. He is acting a part so that we will see that someone who would act that part should be thought less of. Yeah, and I I think the very last, uh, second to last paragraph, right before he says, you know, and I'm not going to personally profit from any of this, but putting a final joke in it, he actually tells you what this whole thing is about. He says, I desire those politicians who dislike my overture and may perhaps be so bold as to attempt an answer that they will first ask the parents of these mortals whether they would not at this day think it a great happiness to have been sold for food at a year old in the manner I prescribed, and thereby have avoided such a perpetual scene of misfortunes as they have since gone through by the oppression of landlords, the impossibility of paying rent without money or trade, the want of common sustenance, with neither house nor clothes to cover them for their inclemencies of the weather, and the most inevitable prospect of entailing the like or great miseries upon their breeds forever. That is the indictment. Saying, you don't like my system, what you got to replace it. And humanity. How about being humane? Uh, This didn't solve it, right? What's so amazing about this, (laughs) this modest proposal is that it should have, you know, got everybody into a moral uprage and 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 you know gotten this problem under and you're right a hundred years later same issue right it didn't solve it what this essay did was made jonathan swift and amaz's proposal incredibly famous and it i think his his misanthropy for, for humanity as a whole is kind of justified by the fact that such a great piece of uh, uh, such a great indictment, well read, well received, um, didn't. I mean, he was. They said that his after this came out, his birthday was celebrated, right in Ireland. Like they're saying, yes, yes. Jonathan Swift, you've said it, you've done it, you've made your point, we get it, we hold you up as this great man, and it didn't solve the problem. 
Unfortunately, in the 21st century, rife with human trafficking, there's still always more to say.